Answer these questions if you can. What people group is 50% less likely to have proficiency in reading, math, and science, and is more likely to suffer from depression and experience emotional isolation? Well, the answer is boys. Clearly, this is cause for concern, but what is even more concerning is that such boys often grow up to be angry men. America has a boy crisis. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, it's panic in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. People, let me tell you about my best friend. He's a warm-hearted person who loved me till the end. People, let me tell you about my best friend. He's a one-boy, cuddly toy. My up, my down, my pride and joy. People, let me tell you about him. He's so much fun. Whether we're talking man to man or whether we're talking son to son. The song you hear playing in the background is by Harry Nilsson. It was the theme tune to an ABC television series from the 1960s called The Courtship of Eddie's Father. It was based on a novel and a film of the same title. The series starred Bill Bixby as the loving and attentive father of a young boy. Each week, American viewers witness Bixby's character try to help navigate his son into complete manhood. In the 1960s, at the time of the show, 5% of white children were raised with an absent father. At the same time, for blacks, 25% of African-American children were raised with no father. Today, the numbers are tragically increased. 25% of white children have missing fathers, and roughly 75% of African-American children have no father present in their lives. Children without fathers are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crime, and nine times more likely to drop out, and 20 times more likely to wind up in prison. So now there are fewer fathers like Eddie's dad, courageously steering their son's lives into adulthood. And subsequently, society is paying the price. I am so pleased, so delighted to welcome to Watching America, Dr. Warren Farrell. You may know him from previous works such as The Liberated Man and Why Men Are the Way They Are. But his most recent work, along with Dr. John Gray, is The Boy Crisis. One of the things I wish we could dispense with is political labels, because unfortunately, once they are presented, people very often cannot get beyond them. You might think that my guest would be, well, perhaps conservative or certainly inclined that way, but you'd be quite wrong. 
He is, in fact, a former member of a, a group that supported and still does in many ways support the National Organization of Women. In fact, he was a board member. Uh, he traveled in circles with people like Gloria Steinem, John Lennon, and other people associated with the movement. But he is also a person who is very much entrenched with the discipline of seeking the truth, to find the truth, and to reveal the truth, whether it is favorable or disfavorable, to one's previous conclusions. And it is on that level that he is, well, a singular voice almost on the left side concerned about boys becoming young men and their absence of fathers. Please welcome to Watching America, Dr. Warren Farrell. Welcome, sir. Lovely to have you with us. Thank you. I'm looking very forward to this. Oh, good, good. Well, um, you, you live in Marin, and that's a treasured area where I used to love to be myself. Um, but you are a person who has traveled the world speaking on behalf of feminism. And I think I may not be an error if I were to say that you still consider yourself in many ways a feminist. Is that correct? I consider myself a feminist, especially in the ways that Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan and I used to talk about it, which was um, that that we felt there was a, a need for a world to get away from the rigid roles of the past um, that were created by tradition and the need to survive and to um, all of us have more flexible roles for our future, uh, what I would call a gender liberation movement. And um, Gloria used to often say that the, what the world needs now is more women at work and more men at home. And I'm very much exactly in support of that, not so much because just of theory in, in general, but the, the data shows that uh, companies do really well when there's a diverse board that includes women and that, and that children do really well when they have a, a, um, a, a great deal of father involvement and father contact. And so, um, and then Betty Friedan was really quite a visionary in this area. Most people know about the feminine mystique, um, but they don't know about her book called The Second Stage. And The Second Stage came out of many, many, um, well, mostly from Betty Friedan's own mind and vision, but she and I had many talks about the importance of uh, the women's movement uh, not plateauing, that women, for example, could not become really at top-notch levels of their careers if they were, um, if they didn't marry men that were interested in raising the children uh, full-time or at least uh, be significantly involved in raising the children so that they could be have-it-all women, women who broke through glass ceilings, women who also... Um, were women who were married and were happily married and that had um, children that were being raised successfully, not just um, for um, for material success, but also for emotional intelligence. And so these were parts of the beginnings of the feminist movement that, I, that led me to being very, very attracted to it. There are aspects of it today that um, the lack of focus on boys and men and almost the, the, the frequent use of terms of um, men in, in coordination with the word oppressor and uh, the patriarchy that we'll be happy, I'll be happy to talk with you about that I think are uh, that are really hurting women and, and preventing women from respecting themselves and, and preventing men from respecting women as much as I, I would like to have happen. Well, I ask this with my tongue in my cheek. Um, so are there occasions when fish need bicycles? 
there are occasions when fish at least desire bicycles and, <laughs> and, be- and benefit from bicycles. <laughs> you, have... you, you, may, you may wish to explain that to some of the yeah, younger okay. people um, who don't know. <laughs> it's, it, was, it was an offhand quip that uh, Gloria Steinem said one time regarding men, and she said, uh, women need men like fish need bicycles. So <laughs> it was just a, um, we, we won't land her with that as a permanent quote. It's not fair to do that, but just a, a, a bit of fun there. You have said that capitalism and prosperity have led to freedoms with unintended consequences, the freedom to divorce and the freedom to have children without being married. A lot of divorced couples have no father involvement or minimal father involvement at best. Uh, These children fare much worse as a consequence. So in your book, The Boy Crisis, you say that uh, the boy crisis is really an issue of, well, where dads reside or don't reside that causes the the conundrum and the problem. Um, In 1965... Uh, there was the Daniel Moynihan report. Daniel Patrick Moynihan was a Democratic uh, candidate. He was certainly liberal, but he was also a sociologist. And he was um, asked to do an investigation to find out what was happening in urban centers, particularly with minority populations. And to the surprise of many, he said that the key thing that is the most damaging factor for African-Americans at the time was that 25% of that community was fatherless. Now, that was 1965. You go on in your book to say that now 75% or nearing the middle 70% of African-American fathers are absent from the boys' lives and little girls' lives growing up, but particularly most felt by boys. And there's also a correlation with, uh, with whites, 32% of white or Caucasian non-African-American children are now growing up without a father in the home. What impact has that in general on a populace? Yes, first, exactly. You're right. So let me clear up some stuff with the African-American community here, because, you know, we often think of the African-American community as being fatherless and maybe, you know, black men are just not, you know, sort of uh, very responsible and so on. Uh, this, is, um, this is not an accurate assessment. The studies that have been done from 1880 to 1960, and during that 80-year um, period, African-American families were, um, had a, a great deal of father involvement, and they were quite, very often quite intact. Um, in 1880, about three-quarters inner-city African-American families had father involvement. It's only been post-1960 that the father involvement has decreased. And as, as the father involvement has decreased, uh, the uh, the crime, the, um, the, the unemployment rate has increased um, significantly. And you're absolutely right. When Moynihan did his report in 1965, there was only 25% of the African-American community had a fatherless situation. And, and about 75% have it today. And, and, the, and the Caucasian community, it has increased 12-fold from 3.1% uh, um, in 1965 to, um, to 35% today. And, and it's in those areas. So the fear, what Moynihan started to do, the Moynihan Report, what became popularly known as the Moynihan Report, um, was that he would be finding the African-Americans inherently uh, inferior in, in many ways. But in fact, he did not find 
find that he found that it was only that small percentage, or at that time the 25% of the um, African-American families where there was minimal or no father involvement, or what I call dad deprivation. Uh, that was where the, the kids were not um, completing school. They, were, they didn't have good um, postponed gratification. Uh, the, the lack of postponed gratification led to them not completing their, uh, their homework, or if they were you know, good at the basketball team or the football team, they didn't have the discipline to do all the rehearsals that were needed. And they were therefore feeling not just um, not respected among their peers and among their teachers and among their coaches, but also the parents would be giving negative responses to them. And more importantly, they would start becoming ashamed of themselves and they would be looking for other sources of approval and particularly boys. While girls and boys both really were hurt significantly in more than 50 developmental areas um, when they had a lack of father involvement, the developmental problems for boys was much greater than the developmental problem for girls. Not that much different, but more intense. They were more likely to get depressed, more likely to withdraw into video games, drugs, um, more likely to get involved in gangs, more likely to be attracted to um, a sense of community by by that gang or substitute family. And so, the, and, so and, and the boys who hurt um, by not having father involvement, boys who hurt tend to hurt us. Um, when testosterone is channeled really well, it's probably one of the world's most constructive forces when it's channeled really badly or is allowed to just go adrift, it becomes one of the world's most destructive forces. And so I began to see some version of this happening worse in America than in any other country, but it was happening to some degree in all 56 of the developed nations around the world. And I started to see, as you said at the opening part of this, that in developed nations, there was enough, there, there wasn't as much preoccupation with the need to survive, particularly among the middle and upper middle class. And so there was permission in terms of their laws and their social mores to say, okay, you know, if you want to be divorced, you can be divorced because it's not going to destroy anything. And if you want to be a single mother without, without a father, um, you should be able to have that freedom. So the good news was that, that these countries, the 56 largest developed nations, tend to be, tended to be more successful, or at least in the middle and upper middle class. And, um, and they'll, and they allowed more freedoms. And like all you know, things in life that happen, they're often unintended consequences. But the freedom to be divorced usually led to um, the children having much less contact with their dad. Um, and in the uh, single mother situations, um, the children either did not know their father at all, did not even know who their father was, knew their father very minimally, or in situations where the mother and father were not married but just lived together when they had the child. Uh, That relationship lasted only an average of three years, and then usually the father, um, there was minimal father involvement after that, and so the children felt abandoned by their father, and that led to uh, all the 50 problems of developmental underachievement um, that I discuss in, in the Boy Crisis book. This is Watching America on WHRV. We'll be right back. I'm Ira Plato. On the next Science Friday, many black outdoor enthusiasts say they don't always feel safe hiking, birdwatching, 
or just enjoying being outside. It's been bubbling for a really long time. And in the environmental sector, it's been bubbling in very particular ways. Making the outdoors more inclusive on the next Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Friday at 2 on WHRV, public media serving Eastern Virginia. On this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, COVID-19 survivor Tom Hanks describes how he will save the world. We have not only been approached, we have said, uh, do you want our blood? Can we give plasma? And in fact, we will be giving it now to the places that hope to work on what I would like to call the Hank scene. I'm Peter Sagel. Join us for The Cure for What Ails You. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturday at 11 on WHRV Public Media, serving Eastern Virginia. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and my guest is Dr. Warren Farrell. He has written and produced the book, The Boy Crisis, which is an examination of where our society is today, with largely the absence of fathers and the lack of affirmation for young boys who eventually become men. Well, in general, you said that uh, particularly when you have people cohabitating, as the term used to be used, um, living together, men typically stick around on average for only about four years uh, with with uh, continuous involvement in the in the lives of their children. One of the things that I think is uh, misleading and unhelpful is, again, as I, I alluded to at the outset of this program, is this concept of like, oh, that's a left issue or that's a right issue and what have you, as if we have to check all the boxes off to be truly aligned and faithful to whatever given group we associate with politically, when in fact it's just a human issue. I think nothing bears this out better than uh, Larry Elder, who is considered a conservative, came on this show decrying and very concerned about the issue of in not only the African-American community, but specifically he was talking talking about the African-American community and the devastating effect it has. So there was a lot of people who said, well, what do you expect? He's a conservative. Recently, Denzel Washington, and I want to play a a clip with you, interviewed by Roman J. uh, Israel, Esquire, um, brought the same issue up. Now, Denzel Washington is hardly to be considered a a conservative, um, not at all. But he expressed precisely the same thing of concern that you have and Larry Elder. So it seems to be neither a left or a right issue. So let me play the clip. I'd like to get your response. Here's Denzel Washington. You know, incarceration rates in America has been a problem, especially as opposed to minorities. Do you think we've made any headway? In the I think it's more important to make headway in our own house. By the time the system comes into play, the damage is done. They're not locking up seven-year-olds. I, I was in Chicago a couple of three, four weeks ago, and we saw these little kids on bikes with masks on the side of their head, like five or six of them. And the driver said, yeah, they're little yummies. I said, who? He said, Lil Yummy's. Look up. Google Lil Yummy. Mm. Lil Yummy was an 11-year-old murderer, and he got murdered at 11 by a 14-year-old. Wow. Who's doing life now and a 16-year-old. That makes no sense. You, you blame the system? Where was his father? Yeah. It starts in the house. It starts in the home. And yeah, well, well my father got locked up. Well, where was his father? Yeah. So clearly a deprivation of, of fatherhood. Uh, and again, I want to emphasize, we're not saying it's exclusively in the African-American community, but you can hear in Denzel Washington uh, a combination of utter frustration with with this one factor being so, in many cases, blithely overlooked. But Denzel Washington is right on target. And here's, you know, here's what I learned as I was 
When I submitted the proposal for the boy crisis, I submitted it as having 10, to the publisher, I submitted it as having 10 causes. And as I started researching each of those causes, I started realizing that they were all secondary causes, except for the lack of father involvement. So for example, if a boy grows up in a single mom home and, um, and he goes to a all-female school, he has no male role model, so he's very vulnerable to being seduced for a, a pretend family or a quote family um, by a gang leader and saying, you're, you know, you're going to have a real family here or a drug dealer um, but because he doesn't have the postponed gratification to really achieve on his own to make money easy is very, um, very tempting for him. This is also true in Caucasian communities and Hispanic communities where there's no father invo uh, involvement. And so this so this is uh, this major problem here um, begins to be felt by this um, uh, in in these types of families that where there is that lack of father involvement, but if there is no father involvement in the home and then the boy goes to school and there's no male teachers, uh, that's when it begins to be a problem. Whereas if there is significant father involvement at home and he goes to school and there's no male teachers and male role models, it doesn't have a huge statistical impact on the average boy because he has that secure uh, parenting, that, that father involvement. When I say father involvement, I mean a father that's really engaged with the, the boy, uh, that in particularly does is what I called, uh, have come to call dad-style parenting. And my research led me to understanding that there was really about 10 differences between the way dads tend to parent and the way moms on average tend to parent. And obviously sometimes these are reversed, but one of those differences tends to be things like roughhousing. And you know, you'd think roughhousing is just fun between the mom and the dad. And oftentimes when, when there is roughhousing, uh, moms go, oh my God, I feel like I, I just have one more child to mom. Monitor and the, and the father, and then um, and but you know moms will try to sort of say, okay, I don't want to be controlling, uh, and the kids are having fun, so okay, I'll keep my mouth shut, and but I'm just a fear, afraid that you know sooner or later one of these uh, the kids are going to get hurt, and I just uh, can't handle that, um, but I'm I'm going to keep my mouth shut, and um, and sooner or later um, the mom is about 99 and a half percent likely to be right, and the child somebody cries, somebody gets hurt, and you know so the mom says to herself, you know, all right, you know maybe. Maybe, um, maybe now dad will learn, um, but dad doesn't learn. And dad goes, you know, um, okay, um, Jimmy, you shouldn't put your, your elbow in, in your sister's face like that. And so, um, okay, dad, okay, daddy got it. And so the kids go back to the roughhousing again. Let's say there's three kids that are jumping off the couch on the back of the father, and they're trying to pin him down before the father, father pins them down. And so um, they promise to be really, you know, um, thoughtful of their sister's or brother's needs or empathetic in some level. And, um, and then they completely forget about it because they are experiencing what um, psychologists call emotional intelligence under fire. And under fire, uh, those promises are, are uh, um, not um, kept. And so now... Uh, and the mother is going, all right, now at least, this has happened twice in a row, dad will learn his lesson. But dad says instead, okay, now I gave you the warning, you didn't obey the warning, so if, if again, you don't obey the warning, there's no, um, there, there's no um, roughhousing, let's say, till tomorrow night. And it's tomorrow night that the kids 
because the dad canceled the roughhousing, now the following night when dad says the same things, the kids now know that they'll lose the roughhousing and all the fun and excitement if they don't think of their sister's and brother's needs and if they don't understand the difference between being aggressive versus assertive. And so they, they then engage in doing that because they don't want to lose the roughhousing and, and the fun. And so uh, that boundary enforcement combined with the bonding, the, the dad bonds through things like roughhousing and game playing, and then he sets boundaries, but he's um, able to enforce the boundaries without a significant resentment because the kids are so engaged and excited and they want that, that connection with their dad again. And so that allows the dad to have that, to have that boundary enforcement stick with resentment and rebellion. Uh, but dads don't know this, and no parenting magazine teaches dads that, and moms can't hear what dads don't say. Um, and so, you know, everyone is left in the feeling like dad is just creating a danger to the child. And with the, when I did the research for the boy crisis, what I discovered was that, that this father, type of father involvement was highly connected to a child being likely to be more empathetic, um, because the child's required to think of his sister's or brother's needs or, their, or vice versa. Um, and the and also having better social skills because the child is now beginning to discover the difference between being assertive versus aggressive and is also required to have postponed gratification instead of getting, you know, the, the pushing the sister away immediately in order to win. They're required to sort of win much more subtly and it takes longer to do it that way. And so in that postponed gratification, becomes the single biggest predictor of success um, in, in school and in, in, uh, in life in general. Now, I don't know of a single father that explains this to moms in a loving, caring way that also then listens to moms' contributions like when is rough getting too rough and when is you know climbing too high in a tree too high. And the, what I discovered was in researching what works best for children, it's not father involvement alone, it's not mother involvement alone, but it's checks and balance parenting. And, um, and this is what leads to the average child, girl or a boy, having a much more success in life, not just in financial success, but also emotional success. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and my guest is Dr. Warren Farrell with co-author John Gray. He has written and produced the book, The Boy Crisis, which is an examination of where our society is today with largely the absence of fathers and the lack of, well, affirming, the lack of affirmation for young boys who eventually become men. One of the things I found um, very interesting, Dr. Farrell, was uh, you spoke about boundary setting and boundary enforcement, and you gave a particular vignette elsewhere, which I've I've heard, where you speak about bedtimes uh, between mums and dads, and you said that uh, a mum, for instance, would say, oh, you've got to go to bed at nine o'clock. A dad would be more lenient typically, although nobody's monolithic, everyone's different. But in general, the dad will say, no, 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 you can stay up to 9.30. Mom will say, what? That's that's ridiculous. They've got to go to bed. No, 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 let them stay up. But you got to get your homework done and what have you. So what happens is um, the kids uh, don't do their homework initially. And uh, dad says, well, you got to go to bed at 9.30. Mom's horrified. She says, okay, we can't have you go into school tomorrow without your homework. So what happens is the child or children uh, wingle away uh, to, to be ensure that they get to stay up later. Where the father initially seems harsher, but according to your observations, instills a kind of an innate discipline 
that, to no fault of the mother, um, it, because of a nurturing status, isn't more inclined to follow through with. So uh, if if a child is, for instance, told that he can't have ice cream um, if he doesn't get a chore done, the father's more likely to say, no, you can't have ice cream, where the mother will renege. Now, I have seen this lived out <laughs> over and over and over again in my own marriage. Yes. And my, my, my wife's a wonderful mother. Um, but she will misconstrue, or at least did years ago, misconstrued my intent, which was not to cause pain for the sake of pain, but to say uh, there's a consequence for not following through with a particular action. With this absence sometimes of fathers in an environment, what can single mothers do? Because I'm conscious of the fact that there are people listening right now. There are women who are listening right now and they are saying to themselves, well, this is all fine and dandy. The man isn't here. What am I supposed to do? And they're slapping their hands on the on the, on the the steering wheel as they drive listening to us. You have actually uh, come up with a list and, and this might be a bit of a guide for all of us to consider your, your uh, measures here for Four must-dos if you are going to be divorced. Yes, absolutely. So the four must-dos are first that if there is a divorce, that there be an, about an equal amount of time that the children spend with both their dad and their mom. Um, uh, number two is that there is uh, that dad and mom live within about a twenty-minute drive time from each other, so that the children, when it gets much more than that, what the children end up doing is resenting going over to the other parent's home because they're having to miss their soccer practice or um, having to miss a birthday party of a good friend, and that creates a, a tension and a resentment that isn't healthy. Uh, number three, and this is probably the second most important is that there is no bad mouthing that the children can detect uh, from mom to dad or dad to mom. Uh, because when you bad mouth the other parent, it's one of the worst forms of child abuse uh, for the child because half of the child is the father and half of the child is the mother. And the child looks in the mirror and let's say a boy is hearing that his dad is irresponsible and a narcissist, let's say. Uh, well, the boy is looking in the mirror. So he says, well, maybe I'm a narcissist like my dad, or maybe I'm irresponsible, or dad says mom's a liar. Maybe I'm a liar. I did lie to so-and-so last week. And the boy begins to inhabit the the negative um, statements made about the father begin to, the boy begins to feel like that's maybe inherently him. And, but because he can't take that, that statement and go to mom and argue differently without getting into an argument with his mom, he keeps it to himself. He can't go to his dad and tell, say what mom said because he's afraid of getting dad and mom back into an argument about that again, which only increases his destabilization. And so he just keeps it to himself which is the beginning of boys having problems when they keep feelings to themselves, especially if they don't have good mentors or good faith-based communities to, to turn to, to or to Boy Scouts or some other um, avenue that they can open up and, exp and, and share some of their uh, internal experiences. So, um, and the fourth is that and this is the most recent data, is that um, the children who do the best are ones whose parents are going into counsel relationship counseling um, at least uh, once a month, but ideally more than that. And it should not be just emergency counseling because when emergencies come up, uh, fathers and mothers tend to, to do bottom line type of statements like, you know, he's this way, she's that way. And they don't really understand the best intent of the other parent. And so, uh, the, so it's important to be 
uh, involved with a counselor if you're in a poor community or you have a poor situation yourself. Um, there, are, there are many community um, counselors that are available for very reasonable prices and sometimes no cost at all. Your most important responsibility to your children is making sure that you uh, communicate with the father effectively for the children's good directly, but also for the children's good indirectly so that children can see that there can be disagreements and problems that come up and that there are ways of solving those problems uh, that, that, uh, that work. I'm speaking with Dr. Warren Farrell uh, with his co-author, Dr. John Gray. They have co-written together The Boy Crisis, which is a thorough examination of, well, just that, the crisis of boys uh, not being affirmed and also being at considerable disadvantage in our society today. One of the things you talk about is boys suffering from uh, low self-esteem, genuine low self-esteem. And you say, Dr. Farrell, that uh, girls tend to date winners, not losers. And yet we have boys who are not accomplishing as much as they used to. For instance, in the UK, my native land, boys are now scheduling uh, or coming and actually being evaluated with IQs at 15% uh, uh, lower than they were in the 1980s. Um, It doesn't seem to fare well in other major countries, the 56 leading industrial countries. So uh, unaccomplished boys tend to be angry. Uh, They play more video games, you say, dabble with alcohol and perhaps other drugs. Pornography, which causes them to objectify women. And basically, they recede and they become very, very angry. What is the antidote? The antidote, more than any other single thing, is the involvement of dads and the appreciation of what dads have to bring to the parenting process. That is not exclusively the only thing children need, but it is part of the checks and balance parenting. And so what we've done in the last uh, half century is to um, increasingly leave dads out of the process with the, you know, the data that we talked about at the outcome of the show. And this has left moms um, very stressed out. When I was, um, be, I was married for a number of years and then, um, and then was uh, single for a number of years and then before the last 26 years where I've been um, uh, engaged with my wife. And, um, and so in that period in between, when I dated women, I was almost always women who had children. And the, 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 the single word that came out of those women's mouths more than any other word was, I feel overwhelmed. And then when I asked for more information about that, more of the feeling, the women would often say, you know, I feel like I'm really good at my job and my work, but I just don't have enough time to do it well. And I feel like I'd love to be more involved with my kids. I just don't have the time to put into the kids and still be able to earn the money to be able to support them effectively. And I just feel torn and overwhelmed and like I'm not doing anything well. And, um, and so without father involvement, the best of women are overwhelmed. Um, and the, without father involvement, the men often feel purposeless and, uh, and not needed and drift. And, they, um, and they, they don't feel called upon or wanted for their gifts. And they don't usually read about the, or the gifts that they have, so they don't articulate them well to the, to the, mo- the mother. And then, and then the third, the children end up doing worse in about 50 different developmental areas. And 
And so, and nobody understands how they do, uh, what, what leads to them doing worse in all of these areas. And I mentioned a few of them before, like the boundary enforcement versus boundary setting and the importance of roughhousing. And the good news is that mothers can do these things. Uh, there's a school in New York um, called, uh, in Brooklyn, in Bedford-Stuy, which is one of the poorest areas in the country, and that, has, that takes only children that were about to drop out of high school. And both female and male teachers spend the first two hours of the day um, 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 having the children do physical activities, games and, and competitions and um, just um, soul activities like push-ups and things like that. And after those two hours of physical exercise, uh, then the children are released to their academic studies. And this is, works very well for girls and especially well for boys who need to get some of that physical um, energy out of their system. But the coaches are both female and male, and then they they stop coach. They don't continue new groups of people that are coaching. They follow. They check in with the teachers of academic issues like algebra or whatever, and see if there's any other the people that they've been coaching that are having problems. And if they are, they sit down with those kids, and and they're able to 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 get the kids to have the attitude, okay, you just overcame the other team by this type of discipline, doing this type of thing. Well, you know, the, 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 your, your opponent now is figuring out algebra. How do you go about doing that? And they, and they start helping their kids figure that out. So the two lessons from, from Urban Dove's experience is that, number one, females can do these things as well as males. Females can roughhouse. Females can enforce boundaries. Uh, females can get out with their kids and, and play soccer. Females can understand that men and women both have unconditional love for their children, but dads and moms' unconditional love is expressed differently as a rule that can be reversed. Moms tend to be unconditionally um, protecting them, making sure they're not hurt, they're not crying, and trying to fix the problem when they, they are hurt or crying. Dad's method of unconditional love involves not, involves conditional approval, saying yes, it was you know it's okay that you um, uh, it's it, it you, you when I kicked that soccer ball at you, uh, you you were standing too far to the left and you didn't protect the right. That's why it went through. Uh, okay, Dad, let's try that again. And then Dad beats the child at a game that they set up playing, and the child ends up crying, um, and and Mom feels like gee, the child's crying. You didn't know how to play with the child sensitively, and Dad is. Saying no, I didn't want to give the child unconditional approval until she or he earned it. I want them to have the experience of losing, so that they can become, in the long run, a real winner. And so, moms and dads, as they talk about these things, start to beginning to say, beginning to have a different type of dialogue. Is which is when is mom's propensity to protect or dad's propensity to make to, for tough love? When is it going too far? But understanding at the deepest level that both parents have unconditional additional love. They have just different ways of expressing it. Well, fathers essentially, according to your book, um, are comfortable with the idea of letting their children have bad experiences, whereas mothers tend to want to protect from most bad experiences. And yet, um, I, I felt this as a father and being very, very candid. Um, I, I'm, I'm a very sensitive daddy, always have been very affectionate, demonstrative father. But sometimes my wife could not understand why I would... Uh, under, uh, witness my my sons struggling with things. And it wasn't that I was indifferent, but I wanted to see them 
you know the old proverbial thing of you can't help a bird out of its its uh, baby bird out of its 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 egg. It's got to peck away and, and get out. And there is a, this need for the strengthening, which sometimes I think women don't always uh, fully grasp. I want to move on to an, another aspect, which is a great frustration for me and has been for decades. Um, I am a uh, an academic. Uh, I've been in the classroom, and every campus that you go to across America, across the land, has a charter and a, a, a decree of money which is given to a woman's center. There's women's centers all over America on college campuses. I've yet to find a man's center or a men's center. When I mention this, the best I get back is, well, men don't need them, uh, and if they did, they wouldn't go. And I, and I always say to well-meaning women who say this, that's very presumptuous. Uh, if I were to reverse that, you'd be horrified if I were to say the same regarding women. Now, before you go any further, I need to remind my audience regarding you, Dr. Warren Farrell, that you were a board member of the National Organization of Women, um, that you are a strong and were a strong supporter of Hillary Clinton. So you are not predisposed to being indifferent to the plight of women. But knowing that what we do know, that 60% of colleges, universities, the enrollment is women, why are we still living with a 1980s or even 1970s mentality, which is unwarranted? The re First of all, what you're saying is absolutely true, and it's really, in many ways, much worse than that. We're we're doing. We have many ways of protecting women on the college campuses. Of uh, you know, when a man and woman are, uh, if a woman accuses a man of uh, being a sexual harasser, um, we have the hashtag Believe Women, and we we have hashtag Me Too, uh, in which women are speaking up. And this is wonderful that women are speaking up. Hashtag Me Too is very important, but Hashtag Me Too needs to not be a monologue. It needs to be a dialogue. Um, males have their experience. Females have their experience. I have never worked with a couple where there was an accusation of uh, date rape or sexual harassment where when I worked with both people um, in that process that the woman and man did not learn a great deal from each other's perception of their experience, um, selectively remembering only portions of their experience that served that whatever whatever way they tended to look at the world. And so we will not make more progress. If we want to, um, I'm thinking about writing a book called R-E-S-P-E-C-T, Women. And with, with, with <laughs> Aretha the, uh, Franklin. Yes, Aretha Franklin. <laughs> Yes, thank you, Aretha. With the subtitle being um, How to Teach Boys to Respect Women and How to Teach Women to Respect Themselves. And respect comes from holding both sexes equally responsible. To never say believe women or never say believe men, but to hold both sexes to the history of due process where whatever they say can be cross-examined. And we've taken um, due process out of the system that by saying believe women, um, due process in colleges and universities um, has been virtually eliminated. The, um, the lawyer for the boy is not allowed to cross-examine the, uh, the female or the, even the female's lawyer in most cases. And these are things that lead us to not respecting women because you talk to CEOs and they're, uh, who used to love mentoring women and be very successful at it. Uh, they're now afraid of having a woman behind a closed um, office door or opening the door for fear that snippets of the conversation would be heard mm -hmm. or taking the woman out for dinner at night to talk with 
or uh, so it's not on office time. Uh, they feel that no matter which way they move, they're mentoring of women, uh, particularly if a, if a woman did not follow through and do the types of things that she needed to do to get promoted, would leave them in great jeopardy from a lawsuit or getting fired. And so we respect women the most when we hold women and men equally accountable, when we believe neither one inherently, when we don't just hear uh, a monologue of hashtag me too, uh, and when we create a totally different culture about the atti- our attitude toward fathers. If we look at almost all TV now, when there's a father portrayed, um, there's a father portrayed as a, as a you know, a, a sweet but bumbling, um, you know, <laughs> either a jerk or just not very competent. And we, get, we all have our laugh. Um, but this does not, you know, if, if, we're, if our sons are growing up with hearing uh, the future is female and uh, fathers are bumbling fools or, you know, um, uh, some version of that, it doesn't leave our son very inspired uh, to feel that they, um, that, 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 that they will be respected and then to have a future of succeeding. So, and, and every woman who's hearing, your, your woman friend that's listening to you, um, she would probably, in a different sentence, say, ah, that men always keep their feelings to themselves and they're all filled with anger. Well, if men are filled with anger and keep their feelings to themselves, all the more reason we need a men's center on campus and a men's, a men's studies on campus to help men talk about what is what are they holding in? What is the what are the messages that they get that 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 allow them to not sh- that doesn't that don't allow them to share their anger? And if there is a psychologist on campus, we now know, you know, that 75% of the people that see psychologists on camp- campus are women, but 75% of the campus students, even though they're less than 50%. of the ones that commit suicide while they're at college are men. And so if that's happening, doesn't that signal to us that we have all the more need to have boys and men be encouraged to open up, express feelings rather than repress feelings? And when we tell them that males are entitled and they're just um, sons of the patriarchy, uh, this does not allow us to understand that that the toxicities that are associated with masculinity did not come from male entitlement. They came from male sacrifice. The, the, the expectation of boys and men in every generation to fight in, a, to fight in that generation's war. And if you're going to learn that to be a male, you have to be disposable at age 18 or thereabouts, um, that you're going to train yourself for disposability in order to be a hero, in order to be recognized and, and valued by the society. And that's a social bribe to be valued by being disposable. That's the core lesson of masculinity. That's not about entitlement. That's about training uh, training men to sacrifice themselves so they will potentially die so that women and children and other men can live and your country can be protected. And so we have to understand that, yes, males have developed lots of toxicities and men's studies centers are, are needed to help develop a new type of masculinity that doesn't have to incorporate that toxicity, but also to help the country look at the pressures that we put on men to have to, for example, when they're boys at age 15, be expected to take the, initi- the sexual initiatives first, and, and then we blame them if they take it too quickly, and we call them a wimp if they don't take it quickly enough. These are all the types of things that we all need to study because we're all in the same family boat. There's no such 
thing as only one sex winning. Uh, when only one sex wins, both sexes lose. I have that written on my desk. I was going to go there. Oh, do you the, really? Oh, yeah, so I was going to be my next book. quote right. for you regarding that. I want to ask you as we get ready to c- conclude, um, it seems to me that um, you, you are an incredibly brave gentleman uh, because you're not going along with the mantra that one wants to or expects to hear in, in given circles. For instance, when you present statistics and facts, uh, they stand by themselves. They do need interpretation. But nonetheless, the material is there. And yet you have been associated with a body, and I don't say this disparagingly or unkindly, the National Organization of Women. For instance, when you uh, discovered the wage gap uh, discrepancy, that in to a large extent it was a myth uh, with some qualification. It's not a myth that, that men make more money, but you discovered that it was actually because of their involvement, their uh, uh, incredible d- diligence of staying at a job, working longer hours, very often doing dangerous work outside where women are less inclined to to do that. Um, you received a lot of criticism for it, and uh, yet you you were persevering, and you said, well, no, this is strictly the data I have, but I care about women deeply. You care about your daughters. You care about the women in your life. How do you deal with critics who cannot get beyond the, the given expected uh, outcome despite the results? First of all, um, I would be lying if I said it wasn't hard. Um, a lot of a lot of my friends, almost all of my friends, were feminist in orientation, and um, only a few of them have you know have taken the the position that I really want to hear your perspectives and I re- want to read them, and I also want to talk with you about them and that type of thing. Um, many of them have disconnected from me, and um, and that's really sad for me, and it leaves me in a very lonely place because I am more politically liberal, and I am you know very very um, focused on uh, making sure that both sexes are served well um, mm. with the same philosophy that I just shared with you a moment ago. And so I can't say that it is easy. Um, I am fortunate that um, I, I feel like I, I, I do have a trust in myself that I'm doing the very best I can for everybody. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm fortunate that my wife reads what I write and reads it even before it's published and gives me feedback. And I uh, let that go out to that. I let my drafts of my books go out to many, many other women as well and make sure that I'm not missing anything. And so I feel very secure in what I'm putting forth. And at the same time, it feels lonely um, because I'm supported oftentimes. The, the people who, are, you know, when I went, I went out to, for example, Iowa to interview the presidential candidates out there a year ago, April, and I interviewed about 10 of them and have seven of them are on my uh, website um, or on the um, YouTube channel and um, and talk to them about the importance of father involvement and the and to articulate the boy crisis as part of their campaign. And um, and the the candidates themselves were really quite receptive to it. Um, but the campaign managers said, oh, no, no, we can't do that because, you know, if you're saying fathers are so important, that's going to make our, our, our mothers that have sing- that are single mothers feel like they're not, uh, they're not, they're, they're, they'll they're make them feel criticized. Yes. Yeah. And it'll, you know, we, and we want women to have the, the, um, the priority of uh, whether or not they want to be the primary parent after divorce. So we can't bring that up. And to a person, the, the candidates who were receptive or ultimately were not able to articulate 
articulated, there is um, a resistance on the part of political liberals to understand and honor the importance of fathers, what boys are going through, the importance of men's studies as well as women's studies, the importance of this of gender being a dialogue and not a monologue, the importance of creating a gender liberation movement where both sexes are free from the restricted roles of the past um, to more uh, to more open and flexible roles for our future. This is a fight we must be all in together, and the Democrats and liberals are missing that. And as a result, they're opening up the door for conservatives who are much more focused on family and father um, to be um, to to make progress among the the, the parents who are voters of multi-millions of boys um, who are having problems. And if conservatives articulate understanding these problems when liberals don't, there's going to be a loss of some very significant voter base, um, just purely speaking on the uh, political level as well. We as liberals are making a big mistake by not having our empathy and our inclusiveness um, extend to boys and men um, as our partners. Dr. Warren Farrell, I love living in America. I'm enchanted with this land and the people that inhabit it. But you are uh, in the top tier of somebody I admire because of your integrity and your sensitivity. And all of your work doesn't seem to be, despite the titles, The Boy Crisis or The Liberated Man or Why Men Are the Way They Are, um, it's not banging a, a, a drum in favor of one gender over the other but rather promoting, if you will, our humanity, our humanist to say it differently. And everything that you do is placed, I think, from a perspective of love. You might shy away from that as an academic, but it is easily perceived. I want to thank you for honoring us by being and watching America. The book is entitled The Boy Crisis. It's co-authored with Dr. John Gray. And my guest today has been Dr. Warren Farrell, a gentleman, a kind soul, and somebody to give us reason for great hope about our future and being more sensitive to each other. Thank you so very much, sir. Thank you. It is so wonderful to be so heard by you, to sort of have you recognize the, the love um, that's involved in all of this and be willing and courageous enough to articulate that and to ask great questions and to listen so attentively. Uh, thank you so much for caring. Come back and contact us when you're ready with your next work. Um, uh, I'll put you at the top of the list. God bless you, sir. It would be my privilege and, and pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Our executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Heather Mazzoni is chief of content and Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I am the series creator and host, Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia. I'm Vietnam veteran Les Page.
Almost five years ago, I asked for your help to find a photo for the 1,306 Virginian Vietnam veterans whose names are on the memorial wall in Washington, D.C. Today, I am honored to tell you that every name now has a photo to honor their service and memory. WHRO and I would like to deeply thank all who participated in this most important effort. For more information, go to whro.org slash wall of faces. 